Look like we're ready to go. <laughs> that being said, good morning once again. My name is Natalie Cole from the marketing team at Dickerson Insurance Services. We are very happy you could join us for today's webinar titled, Working with Exchanges, What Advisors Should Know. Just a couple of things before we get started. Once again, actually give me one. Okay, just a couple of things before we get started. Once again, my name is Natalie Cole, and if you have any questions, you can reach me by email, which is the quickest way, and of course by phone. This course has been approved for one credit hour by the California Department of Insurance. All of our CE presentations are recorded and copies of both the recording and the slide deck will be available for you within 24 to 48 hours after today's presentation. That will come in the form of a thank you email from myself, Natalie Cole. And of course, we report CE credits to the Department of Insurance within two working days of the presentation. We have been instructed to ask polling questions throughout the presentation. And in order to receive credit, it is advised that you answer all of the questions on a computer as opposed to a cell phone. Because when you answer, when you participate on the webinar on a cell phone, unfortunately, it does not record your answers. And of course, in this case, we have three polling questions. So we please answer three, all three polling questions in order to receive CE credit. And of course, if you have any questions, please type the questions in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen, and we will try to answer all the questions at the conclusion of today's presentation. Now, for today's presenter. Today's presenter is Mr. David Fair Sr. We, all, we are very familiar with the 42-year veteran of the employee benefits industry who specializes in alternative funding, flexible benefits, and group purchasing arrangements. He is also the managing partner of Scheffler and Fear, a division of Dickerson Insurance Services and Alera Group Company. He is also the past president of the California and the National Association of the Health Underwriters, AHU. And finally, he is a 2015 recipient of the NAHU Harold R. Gordon Award as Health Insurance Person of the Year. That's a mouthful of a bio, Dave, but how are you this morning? <laughs> I'm good, thanks. I appreciate uh, that introduction and uh, good morning, everyone. It's nice to be back with you. Um, if I don't uh, forget to say it uh, later, uh, wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving next week and uh, we'll take a week off and then we'll have our, our last uh, CE presentation of the year in two weeks. So uh, with that said, let me kind of move ahead here. Today's uh, topic is is uh, can be outlined in this agenda that you'll see. We're, we're gonna talk first a little bit about the history and development of exchanges here in California, uh, the theory behind exchanges, uh, how exchanges are governed, how exchanges are administered, uh, how exchanges uh, approach uh, carrier contracting maybe differently than, than uh, from one another, what are some of the perceived advantages and disadvantages of exchanges, and uh, what role do exchanges and advisors have uh, with each other? And then, and then finally, the uh, future of exchanges as as uh, as we see them. So, with that in mind, let me uh, move ahead. Uh, for some of you who've been in this business uh, a while, um, um, you'll know that uh, exchanges uh, were were really kind of introduced in a big way uh, almost uh, 30 years ago when the uh, Clinton uh, healthcare plan was introduced in 1993. 
And part of the uh, Clinton Care Plan was to establish what were called purchasing groups, which would be organized at the state level for both individuals and small employer groups. As you know, the, the Clinton uh, Care Program died out. It did not get through Congress. And, and uh, consequently, in a number of states, including here in California, uh, state legislation was proposed and passed into law that uh, actually began to reform healthcare prior to uh, the Affordable Care Act. So uh, let me just talk a little bit about this because uh, in 1993, they implemented what was called then AB 1672 and some follow-up legislation. Uh, this was primarily focused on small employer groups only, not on individuals. Uh, it did provide guaranteed issue and guaranteed rates for small groups in California, and at that time it was defined as uh, groups of two to 50. Uh, it established at that time that what something called the Health Insurance Plan of California, or HIPIC as we like to call it, which would act as a voluntary purchasing pool for small employers. This was something that was real, uh, fairly new in the market that nobody had ever done anything like that before. And so the, uh, the, the state legislature uh, implemented this as part of a, a larger healthcare reform law. It also created uh, the, the uh, thing called guaranteed associations, which had been in, in operation since 1987, offering guaranteed issues small group coverage to individual association members. And uh, by the way, in two weeks, so that's going to be the uh, last topic that we cover this year is an update on association health plans and and if you're familiar with associations or have interest in association health plans, you may want to uh, uh, register for that course in two weeks. Um, uh, it did, um, as a result of AB 1672, a, the first private purchasing pool was set up, and that was in 1996, and that was the creation of the California Choice a private purchasing pool later uh, rebranded as a private uh, exchange program. And many of you are, are probably familiar with that. Um, the one thing about the, the, there were some big differences between the HIPIC or the Health Insurance Plan of California, which uh, eventually uh, changed its name to Pacific Health Advantage. Um, it got off to a kind of a bad start because initially it excluded brokers but later uh, changed their mind and embraced uh, having brokers sell their product. Uh, up front, it included some credible partners such as Kaiser Permanente and Blue Shield and HealthNet and some others. It was initially governed by the California Managed Risk Medical Insurance Board or Mr. Mib. Uh, those of uh, us who were working in Sacramento at the time and, and doing a lot of legislative stuff, we became uh, became real buddies with the uh, Mr. Mib uh, board. Um, the law required, uh, however, that the board had to transition the health insurance plan of California eventually to a nonprofit status. And so uh, eventually the Pacific Business Group on Health, which was a, a large employer uh, business group that had been formed many years before, it took over uh, management of um, the HIPIC and rebranded it as Pacific Health Advantage, or as we knew, as, as PAC Advantage. However, by um, uh, December 31st, 2009, um, uh, it discontinued operation due to the carriers leaving the program. So it, it, uh, 
it went down in, in flames. However, uh, I want to say that they learned a lot of interesting lessons uh, with the Health Insurance Plan of California, PAC Advantage, and one of those lessons have, uh, was uh, working with brokers and agents, which had a, an impact on things later, and we'll talk more about that in a second. California Choice, um, meanwhile, as I say, started off in, in 1996. It started off as what I call a broker-friendly model. It, it embraced using uh, agents and brokers from day one, and it included some really credible uh, carriers as well, as including Kaiser Permanente, Blue Shield, Aetna, HealthNet, and some other regional plans. Uh, CalChoice, as, as you probably know, was established by private operators who found a legal precedent for establishing this kind of an entity through Department of Insurance rules. And as you know, it still operates today as one of the largest and most successful private exchanges uh, in the United States. So along comes the Affordable Care Act in 2009. Um, it uh, made a, a lot of changes to the market, as, as most of you know, including guaranteed issue of both uh, individual uh, coverage as well as small group and the large group markets. Now, what, what appears to be in the guaranteed issue on the surface in reality um, made a number of different changes to the way uh, things had to be set up, and including a rating system that, that was unique for the individual uh, market, the small group market, and it did away with a risk adjustment that we'd had that had been enacted back in 1996, where you would you know, quote somebody a standard rate and then the carrier had the ability to, to uh, uh, load or decrease that rate plus or minus uh, 10%. Uh, so that uh, did away with that entirely. It also established a definition of essential benefits that must be offered to both uh, individual and family plans as well as small group and uh, the definition of what we call minimum essential or minimum value coverage in the large group market. So these were you know, big parts of what the Affordable Care Act was about. It established, uh, the, the, it authorized the establishment of public exchanges, which were later uh, rebranded as marketplaces. And it established, that it allowed for establishment of these marketplaces at the state level. However, it did say, and, and, and we do have today, uh, federal uh, uh, exchanges at, uh, well, we have a federal default in, if a state decided not to set up their own exchange. And that's, uh, that's currently operating in, in, mo in many of the states today. Um, this marketplace was established in the IFP and the individual family market because not only did it negotiate rates with carriers and benefits and services, but it also administered and still does administer the advanced premium tax credit, which is a big part of, of uh, when individuals are applying for coverage, it's a big part of uh, a way to get them to pay for their insurance through this advanced premium tax credit. Um, it did, uh, the law did allow for the establishment of optional small business exchanges, and those were authorized in the two to 50, or in our case in California, the two to 100 market in most states, and, and uh, was given the exclusive administration of a small business tax credit for the purchase of um, health insurance as well. Um, the state of California, you know, uh, passed enabling legislation to follow all of the aspects of the ACA, including the establishment of a, of a public exchange, which began operation 
January 1st, 2014 as covered California. And I think most people on this call are, are, are quite aware of, of what covered California is about. There's an interesting theory behind exchanges, and I and I bring this up because uh, those of you who are newer to uh, the the industry, uh, maybe you you've been doing this for less than ten years, you ought to know where some of the uh, thinking was at, why why setting up these exchanges. And for those of you who who think that exchanges are another form of single payer. Uh, I, I just want you to understand that that's, that couldn't be any further from the truth. In fact, these exchanges were set up uh, to try and, and, and point in a different direction from what single-payer advocates wanted. Uh, there was a group called the Jackson Hole Group. That's because they were a bunch of uh, uh, you know, educators, a bunch of uh, politicians, uh, um, different people who met in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and they began to... Uh, meet on a periodic basis and talk about how we could improve or fix things in the healthcare system in this country. And while a lot of their ideas had a lot of merit early on, um, many of those things were uh, eventually caught up in the Affordable Care Act later. And so they began to propose these idea of purchasing groups in order to pool risk in both the individual and the small group market. There was a, a feeling that, you know, prior to um, implementation of these of these uh, purchasing groups that it was just a free-for-all in the in the individual and the small group market you you could not get coverage many times because it wasn't guaranteed issue uh, health questions were were you know required at that time and what it effectively tried to do was spread risk over the largest segment of the population that would help uh, control cost fluctuations which would in turn help stabilize uh, costs or rates in the market <clears throat> the alternative uh, would be to offer, and uh, a number of states uh, do this, a state-operated risk pool, which might cost more or less than um, what uh, uh, a marketplace or a, or a purchasing group would 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 uh, charge. In a mature managed care market, an exchange would provide enhanced provider access. And what I like to say, and, and California is a good example of that. California is a is a mature managed care market. We've had managed care plans around for uh, decades now, and it's 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 fairly popular among most uh, people to buy their coverage either through an HMO or a PPO. In fact, we see very very few, if any, um, indemnity plans anymore. But what a um, what a um, purchasing group or a, a uh, exchange would do is say, we can we can provide 100% provider access. By, by offering a PPO plan or multiple HMOs or EPOs, as they might be called, in a given market. Here up in, in Sacramento, where I live, there are really you know, four or five key provider um, uh, organizations um, that operate, and they might contract with one or more uh, different uh, HMO plans to offer their services through that HMO. So in a mature uh, market like this, providers would often participate in multiple networks or, and provider networks might contract with multiple carriers. The exception to that might be staff model HMOs where the providers are actually uh, employees of the health maintenance organization, uh, similar to what you have with Kaiser Permanente, who is a, a different type of a kind of a quasi staff and 
and group model. Um, why do this? Why, why have this? Well, <clears throat> what they were hoping to accomplish was that there would be price and service competition at the employee level who ultimately selects the carrier from whom they want coverage. In other words, they, uh, when you take a, a person living in the Sacramento market or, or even San Diego, uh, you, you know, and, and you've got access to 100% of the providers in that area through multiple competing uh, health plans, uh, it gives you the ability to, to you know, kind of go out and say, hey, this plan provides not only better value or price, but they, but they provide better service. And so it's, it's easier for me to, to jump from plan A to plan B if plan A uh, starts really uh, giving crappy service. And, and that forced the carriers, I think, to compete at a level that they were not used to when, when the employer would pick a plan and everybody was stuck with that plan that the employer picked. Now the employees would have a choice. Another essential element for an exchange uh, that I believe is is really important is what's called defined contribution. It's a uh, it's essential because in a defined contribution system, the employer funds either a percentage of a core plan or the employer funds a fixed dollar amount to which the employees are are given access to to say you purchase the plan that you want. Here's how much money I'm going to provide you as the employer or uh, conversely, uh, here's a core plan. It's it's Plan A, and I'm going to pay 100% of Plan A. If you want to upgrade to a different plan that has different providers or uh, a better benefit or something, then you might pay the cost difference. But the employer clearly defines up front what their contribution is going to be, and um, the employee pays for costs which exceed that defined contribution. So the employee ends up becoming more involved in the decision process, which considers not just cost and, and benefit, but also provider access as opposed to the traditional one-size-fits-all. Everybody is enrolled in the same you know, HMO or PPO plan. <clears throat> Having multiple competing carriers within an exchange promotes competition based on price, on service, and benefits at the employee level, and that's good, I think. Having multiple competing exchanges, like we do here in California, I think are good for the economy. They're good for consumers and they're good for employers and they help keep uh, uh, prices a little bit lower. Um, so, uh, you know, I've been a big advocate of having multiple competing carriers for years, as well as uh, having multiple competing exchanges so that, you know, if, if all you have is a government exchange, but there's no private exchange to kind of keep one another honest, uh, it can be difficult. And at the same time, having multiple um, you know, having both government and private exchanges compete with each other, I think, I think keeps everybody on their toes. And that's, that's a good sign. That brings us to our first polling question of the day. Uh, the first private health insurance exchange for California small businesses was established in 1996 by California Choice. Is that A, true or B, false? And, uh, Oh, Natalie, I, did, I didn't bring my, my Jeopardy music or that other little catchy song, so you'll have to, you'll have to time it. Okay, I will. No problem. Don't forget, everyone, just as a reminder, um, to receive CE credit, you have to answer all three polling questions, and this is just one of the three. All right. But we're going to give everybody about 40 more seconds, and then we'll close the poll. All right. 
and then tell me how we and tell tell us how we voted. <laughs> I sure will. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to close the poll in about 20 more seconds. So I just want to make sure everyone has their vote in because this does affect if you are able to receive CE credit or not. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and close the poll now and share the responses. How do, how do we look? Okay, it looks like 79% voted true. Okay, very good. Thank you. No All right, let's, let's move on. So let's, let's take a few minutes and let's look under the hood of these exchanges and, and how they operate. And the first area that I would look at is the governance of an exchange and uh, you know, how it's governed, how it's put together and, and how it operates. You know, public exchanges are typically governed by a board of directors who are uh, political appointees who seek for the good of all consumers and employers. And it's a model that's similar to what we have here in California, which is CalPERS. Uh, most public exchanges have a charter from the state or federal law, and they must meet the uh, open records rules and hold public meetings. And that's, uh, I think that's done very well here in California. The, uh, the Covered California uh, Marketplace has uh, always had open public meetings. They uh, they publish uh, information on their decisions that are made, and it's all it's all very transparent. And that's I think that's a good thing. Uh, on the other hand, private exchanges may be operated by both for-profit and non-profit organizations, which fall under regulation by state laws, similar to insurers and health plans or a trade association. Uh, uh, most private exchanges are operated by organizing. Uh, organizations that are providing insurance sales and or services to consumers or business. For example, a, a nonprofit association, a third party administrator, an insurance agency. Um, and in the in the case here in California, they as long as they have a license to act in that regard, they they are allowed uh, to uh, to do these exchanges. Uh, setting up a private exchange is is no easy task. I can tell you this because I've been involved with them for for years, it, it is not something that uh, two guys just get together one day and go out and decide to do because uh, life's just too complicated to make it that simple. Uh, but federal and, and state law does not permit an insurer or a health plan to operate or govern an exchange. So if I'm a, if I'm a health insurance company operating in California, I cannot set up my own exchange. I may, I may want to call myself an exchange but legally they cannot they're not allowed to do that uh, because they th th that's against insurance laws in in various states so uh, you you have to look at it from that perspective that they have to be kind of separate of the carriers okay so what about administration uh, public exchanges usually contract with a government agency for administrative services however Many of these agencies, they don't have the administrative experience, so they'll formally contract with uh, an administrative uh, services organization through a formal bidding process. Uh, this all depends on what is allowed under enabling state law. And, and again, to use the example here in California, 
Covered California uh, went out to bid uh, and uh, contracted for administrative services from uh, a licensed bonded third party administrator. Uh, that's because that's what enabling state law required them to do. Um, <clears throat> other states, um, and I, I, you know, I think of one right off the hand uh, uh, down in um, um, out in the Midwest that basically said uh, we're going to have the administration of our state exchange be done by a state agency, and that happened to be uh, their Department of Insurance administered that. I don't know how well that worked out, but uh, they're still in operation, and they they seem to be doing fine. Um, private exchanges uh, that are usually established by a, a nonprofit or for-profit entity usually contract for services internally if they are a service uh, provider or with an outside entity. For example, a nonprofit might contract with a, a licensed uh, third-party administrator or for a for-profit association or insurance agency might contract with a, a TPA as well. So private exchanges typically take advantage of, of the uh, entities that are out there uh, who provide administrative services and again are, are typically licensed and, and bonded to do that. Um, let's talk about carrier contracting for a minute. Um, there is a, a slightly different way that public and private exchanges operate when it comes to uh, the carriers that they work with. Public exchanges uh, tend to open all uh, participation to all licensed carriers who meet the requirements of public law. Uh, most of uh, public exchanges require closed bids and they limit, uh, they might limit participation to the low bidder or conversely limit participation to those with less duplication of provider networks. Uh, most public exchanges have a common benefit plan design to which the carriers must conform. And, you know, this this idea that, well, they, you know, they only get uh, get the business to the lowest bidder isn't necessarily true in all cases. But but if you live in a in an, in an area and I'll just use Sacramento as a good example, you know, there's there's only one health plan out there that contracts with the, the Permanente Medical Group. And that's that's uh, Kaiser uh, Permanente, you know, the HMO plan, whereas if you want to access um, the Sutter uh, uh, network, you might be able to access a Sutter provider uh, through either Sutter Health Plan directly or through one of the contracting carriers that they work with, like, say, uh, Blue Cross or Blue Shield or, or or somebody else. The point is, is that public exchanges take that into consideration when they're when they're picking the, the carriers that they want to work with them. They, they'd, they'd rather not have duplication if they if they can, uh, you know, if at all possible. Private exchanges tend to contract more on a partnership arrangement rather than a vendor relationship in order to promote the mutual needs. You know, the, the, the one partner wants increased member sales and they want profitability and, and uh, the other partner wants a certain service standards met. So they work out a, an arrangement or a partnership that uh, says we can meet, uh, you know, both of these mutual needs by, by working together. Uh, because private exchanges are contracting with licensed entities, uh, they must agree to meet the minimum state or federal requirements, including reserves and the risk retention of the carriers. So private exchanges uh, are, even though they may not be directly regulated by, by say, the Department of Insurance or the Department of, of Managed Care here in California, 
the carriers that they work with are certainly regulated under those laws. And, and so you might say that there is some government oversight to how public exchange, uh, private uh, exchanges uh, operate and work because of existing uh, insurance laws and, and regulations. Let's then talk a little bit about marketing and sales. Uh, both public and private exchanges may have very different uh, marketing and sales approaches. Public uh, exchanges tend to have specific marketing requirements, the cost of which uh, must be built into the carrier or the carrier rates or the administrative fees. In terms of sales activities, nearly all public exchanges require specific broker contracting and training for both uh, uh, IFP and, and, and or small group products. Uh, federal and state marketplaces uh, might also contract with outside enrollment organizations uh, who were formerly referred to as navigators who are paid a fee for their work if funds to pay for navigators are available. And that's that has been a little controversial over the years. You know, the agent organizations and the uh, and the nonprofit organizations that you know call themselves navigators. You know, they're kind of at odds with each other. But at the end of the at the end of the day, the public exchanges I think did a, a pretty good job in saying you know we're going to give the public um, uh, options here and and we're going to learn to work with both uh, agents and 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 brokers as well as uh, navigators. Uh, everybody kind of knows up front what their responsibilities are and what they're gonna what they're gonna be paid. Private exchanges tend to operate more like an insurance company or a health plan, and they have uh, an internal marketing and sales staff and a contracting end up contracting with external sales producers who are licensed and have completed training for that specific exchange. Uh, at least that's what I've, I've been seeing here in California and some other states. Um, I would also note that <clears throat> some associations uh, who have set up private exchanges for their members will contract perhaps with a limited number of insurance agencies or producers or may operate their own exclusive sales organizations. So you'll, you'll see different entities take a, a, a different approach, which ultimately, you know, is saying what will best what will be best for our members of our of our exchange or our association or or what have you? What would be best to serve their needs? Um, I think that there are 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 some perceived advantages and disadvantages, and I and I would give you maybe some some three different perspectives here. From an individual perspective, this is the you know the individual consumer who's 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 buying uh, the insurance. They tend to like having one place to purchase their insurance, but they frequently stated the need to have an advisor to assist in the complicated process of, of selecting pricing and enrolling for coverage. <clears throat> Many individuals are uncomfortable with the amount of private information they have to provide to qualify for tax credits, but admit that without the tax credit, they would not purchase the coverage. Finally, some consumers complain that that the exchange customer service can be frustrating, especially during the annual open enrollment windows. And I think that uh, I think that the public exchanges have have uh, done an amazing job over the last uh, you know eight eight nine years that they've been in operation uh, to to really improve their customer service better. Um, uh, on the, on the other hand, um, you know consumers say, well, 
you know, if I, I, it doesn't do me a lot of good to make a phone call or get on the internet if the system, if the internet system breaks down or the phone uh, doesn't get answered. So I think these um, exchanges have been very sensitive to we, we need to provide better customer service than what they would normally expect from a government agency. <clears throat> Small businesses clearly prefer to use an advisor to assist in the selection, the pricing and the contribution strategy and enrollment for coverage. Um, uh, small businesses are reporting that much more satisfaction being part of a larger pool, which makes the carriers compete for individual business based on price benefits and provider network and service. And they, they do perceive that they feel like there's more rate stability within an exchange. Uh, we could get into some interesting discussions about, you know, do exchange have more rate st stability than than non-exchange products? And I will tell you that I think um, the, the Affordable Care Act helped put the carriers on a on a clear notice that um, you know we we need to do what we can to stabilize the rates that people are paying. It's we're still getting rate increases. That's that's fairly evident, but I think small businesses you know, look to their broker and they say, look, if, if you think an exchange would provide me with some rate stability and better choices for my people, then, then I want to be able to see that. And so a lot of brokers were kind of forced to say, well, let me, let me bring that to the table and show you that. I will tell you that the, the third perspective here, which is from insurers and health plans, is very mixed in that um, the, a carrier says, well, look, um, we, we have lower administrative costs related to the exchange business because we're not having to go out and, and, and do individual customer billing and, and, and take this stuff, but rather the exchange is providing that or, or some will. Um, but, but at the same time, you know, while they're happy about lower administrative costs in an exchange, they're also perceived that there's some adverse selection based on employee choice models. Uh, you know, they, they'll say, you know, only the sickest uh, employees will buy the, uh, the, the better benefits. That's adverse selection. So they, you know, they're, they're still very concerned or, or nervous about that risk. Uh, many carriers will grudgingly participate in both public and private exchanges, but probably prefer to deal directly with small group clients if they, if they can. At the same time, they monitor their loss ratio numbers carefully so that the pricing within an exchange does not drag down their entire block of business. So they're very careful about, you know, uh, looking at their numbers. Uh, as you probably know, and I'm not going to name names, but there are a number of carriers who maybe started out in an exchange program and then for whatever reason left it, decided it just wasn't, it just wasn't working for them. So uh, that's the nice thing about an open market is that, uh, you know, people can make those decisions. They're not forced to participate in this. Let's go to our second polling question, uh, which is uh, Covered California for Small Business was created under the authority of A, the federal government, B, the state of California, C, a nonprofit corporation cited here in Sacramento, or D, none of the above. And uh, why don't we uh, do a quick 30-second uh, uh, deal on that one, Natalie? No problem. <clears throat> I am on it. We have about 40 more seconds to go. Okay. And me this is the second polling question out of three. Good. Gives me a chance to 
wet my whistle here. <laughs> As you sh yes, absolutely. Definitely stay hydrated. Yes. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and close the poll in about 20 more seconds. Just want to give everyone a chance to register. I'm sorry, to log in their answers. Okay, I hope that everyone has, get, has gotten their answers submitted because I'm going to go ahead and close this poll. And it looks like 77% voted for the state of California. That's correct. That is correct. Even though they, they were uh, uh, created under the federal law, the federal law allowed states to do this. It was state legislation that in, enabled um, gave authority to covered California for small business to be established and, and operate. Very good. Thank you. All right. <clears throat> so let me take a couple of minutes and, and, and talk about uh, contracting, uh, the, the role of agents and advisors with uh, exchanges and, and what that's about. Um, contracting is, is you know, uh, in, in, an interesting topic because initially, People felt like, well, look, if I if I have to be contracted with each separate carrier within the exchange, how is that in, any better than what I have to do on the street? And yet, on the other hand, if somebody said, well, I, I want to have access to the exchange, uh, what do I have to do to get contracted? So clearly, today's market is much more friendly to working with licensed agents and brokers than in the past. Um, nearly all public exchanges require some sort of advisor certification and ongoing continuing education. Most uh, private exchanges only require that advisors uh, be licensed and have adequate E&O coverage. Advisors are working with exchange administrators to make the consumer and small business experience more appealing. Uh, most exchanges that I'm uh, aware of, both public and private, have um, <clears throat> advisor um, working groups uh, or agents from broker advisory groups and they and they bring them in and and they say look tell us what's going on tell us how we can do better uh, what how does this work and you know typically if if you're a if you're a major producer for one of the exchanges here in California uh, they want you to to reach out to them and 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 help them so that they do a better job so um, I, I will tell you that um, I, I think that relationship between it uh, licensed agents and brokers, advisors, and exchanges have, has grown uh, much stronger over the last uh, few years. Um, advisors like contracting with a single exchange entity rather than contracting with each separate carrier within the exchange. And that's especially nice if those carriers have rate parity. If the carriers are now charging the same rate in and out of the uh, exchange for the same plan design, uh, that's that's been very 
very good to for the uh, agent and, and broker. Um, from a compensation standpoint, and, and this I know can be very touchy because most uh, trade associations uh, really can't get involved with compensation issues, but market competition has led both public and private exchanges to provide competitive compensation to advisors. That has been a very good thing. And, you know, we're pretty lucky in California. I've, I've lived and worked in many other states in my career, and I will tell you that uh, in, in states where there's not a lot of competition among carriers, uh, that's when brokers really suffer from a compensation perspective. Uh, I'm not going to name the states, but I will tell you that, and many of you are probably aware of this, but, but uh, when you've got competition, that, that's only good, that, that not only benefits the employer who, and then the consumer, but it benefits the broker who's selling those products. In the IFP market, compensation is still controlled by the carrier, whereas in the small group market, the exchange uh, determines the compensation amount. So, you know, it's, it's almost like the exact opposite. Um, you know, uh, Covered California, of course, being in the IFP market, uh, lets the carriers set their own commission levels, uh, whereas in the small group market, the um, uh, Covered California and uh, uh, CalChoice both will uh, say, you know, um, this is the uh, compensation that we want you to pay brokers so that we're uh, treating everybody fairly here. Uh, some compensation is still paid as a percentage of premium, a commission, as we're all familiar with, but there are <clears throat> some exchanges that now uh, pay optional broker fees, uh, PEPM per employee per month, and they're starting to uh, appear, especially outside of California, where it, there is less carrier competition. So you'll see occasionally some carriers that will come into California and they'll, they'll try to do it one way, but when they see that all of the carriers are, are paying a commission as opposed to PEPM, then they, they get on with the deal. So it's a very market-driven uh, issue. And I think exchanges have done a, a very good job of trying to be on top of that. You know, that's a lesson that they learned from the 90s when they had the, the HIPIC first startup that uh, was not working with brokers. And then they made brokers uh, optional. And by the time Pack Advantage took over the HIPIC, uh, brokers weren't optional. Uh, the, the, the broker compensation was included in their rates, which is what we as, as a broker community at all uh, asked for anyway. So let me kind of uh, come to a, a, a summary and a, and a conclusion here about the future of exchanges. Um, as, you, as you all know, the ACA is still law of the land. Uh, public exchanges are still a, a key part of the ACA and they're not going away. Okay, I, I, I know that there are a number of brokers out there who really feel like that's, there's no need for that. But you know, when the, when the federal law was enacted and then they said, you know, we're gonna give the public exchanges uh, the administrative oversight for the um, advanced premium tax credit or for a small business uh, tax credit and stuff. Uh, I, I think that meant that they were going to, uh, they were going to be around for a while. Um, <clears throat> guaranteed issue and guaranteed rates are not going to go away in the IFP or the small group markets. Uh, these, this is part of the ACA and, and that's not going to change. Um, the federal exchange is Finally, uh, working well after some initial service issues. I used to go to these conferences in Washington, D.C., and all I heard were complaints about working with the Federal Exchange. It was a big mess, and I, I get that. And early on, uh, the Federal Exchange had a lot of problems. 
uh, I think most of that has been worked out now. And and if you're in the IFP market, and I'm not, uh, then you'll 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 see that it, it's it's worked out a lot better. I think California really led uh, the nation when it comes to efficiency and and uh, workmanship of of the state exchange doing the right thing and and uh, good timing. But everybody had growing pains. Uh, the surviving state exchanges are doing well. They appear to be serving the needs of consumers by negotiating rates and benefits that are as good or better than non-exchange products. And that's that's a big part of what they were supposed to be doing. And and as, as you all know, the advanced uh, premium tax credit, the APTC, continues to be popular through the marketplace. I mean, you know, people can't afford to, to pay the full premium for their uh, their coverage, it's it's very expensive, and having that uh, premium tax credit around has really uh, given new life to the individual uh, small group market, uh, the individual market. Um, private exchanges will continue to come and go based on their ability to provide uh, innovative plan designs, competitive prices, and superior service to their public counterparts and their carrier direct products. I mean, the private exchanges. Uh, are not guaranteed to be successful. They have to compete, and they've got to they've got to come up with uh, good plan designs. They've they've got to negotiate um, competitive rates. Uh, in some cases, getting the, the carriers to agree to rate parity so that the the rates they charge in the exchange and out of the exchange are the same for the same product. Uh, that has been a, a real boon to their business, and and of course the superior service. I mean, it's it's. You know, everybody likes to point at government and say how inefficient government is. Well, you know, I can tell you that big corporations can be pretty inefficient, too. So these private exchanges that have been set up, uh, you know, they rely on the fact that they're, you know, they're they're a little bit uh, smaller. They're not a big government bureaucracy and they operate on a service first uh, uh, mindset for their their people. <coughs> Excuse me. Private exchanges are now in place for not just medical, but also the sale of ancillary products such as the dental, vision, life, AD&D, disability, and, and virtual care. And uh, I think that an advisor who shows exchange options to their client should be able to answer these questions. And, and um, again, we'll, we'll send out a copy of this to anyone who, who requests it. But but, um, you know, here are the things that I think a client needs to hear from their broker about exchanges. One, who governs this exchange that you're promoting? You know, is it is it run by the uh, a private uh, company? Is it run by the government? Is it run by a nonprofit, a for-profit? Who's governing that exchange? How long has that exchange been in operation? Do they have a track record? Uh, is that track record been good? Um, do they get favorable uh um, you know, consumer uh, reports there. Uh, who are the participating uh, carriers within the exchange? Uh, do, do you offer just, you know, one or two, uh, just a few, the minimum that, to operate, or do you have uh, more um, uh, more um, open, openness about carrier participation and, and availability? Is the exchange flexible? Can it make changes? Can it uh, respond to consumer and market needs? Uh, fast enough, and and this has been a, a frequent complaint about uh, government exchanges not being flexible enough because the process to to make changes requires a whole process here of you know having a an elected or, or appointed board go through the the decision process. 
but um, but believe me, there are some exchanges out there that are private exchanges and they're fairly large, and they they're not as flexible as maybe they used to be. Uh, are the exchange plan designs competitive? Are the is the exchange offering me plan designs that my clients will buy, um, or are they are they still trying to sell me the same old stuff that's not really uh, being purchased anymore? Um, are those exchange rates competitive? Uh, can I can I get the same uh, product um, uh, for the same price in the exchange as I can out of the exchange? Uh, is the carrier, uh, you know, trying to influence me to buy into the exchange or buy out of the exchange? You know, those are that's a that's a big issue. What sort of consumer service industry uh, history does the exchange have? Are, are there frequent complaints? Are there you know, you could go to the uh, Department of Insurance or the Department of Managed Care and and say, you know, I, I want to file a complaint against this entity because uh, they, they don't pay my claims quickly or 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 uh, they don't answer the phones and this kind of stuff. <clears throat> Who administers the exchange? Is it done internally by that the entity that's sponsoring it or do they uh, use an outside third party administrator? What does the administrative services does the exchange provide? Is it is it basically just an enrollment platform and then you still get a bill from the carrier directly? Does it have a combined billing statement uh, from all carriers into one? Uh, does it have an online um, uh, enrollment platform that that's uh, common to um, the exchange uh, participants? You know, what kind of services does it provide and, and what do those services cost? Does the exchange offer both medical and ancillary benefits? And that's that's become a big issue lately. And then finally, will the exchange work with an advisor or do they consider advisors to be a necessary evil? And that's a kind of a standing joke in some places where, you know, if you, you look at some of these consumer advocate groups that, that want to, uh, you know, eliminate the role of the broker because they think that's just an extra cost that uh, is, is not is not worth the money. But yet, on the other hand, if the exchange says, well, you know, we think the consumer should be the judge, you know, make the judge of that. And, and they can decide uh, who they want to buy their insurance through. And, you know, what what does the exchange uh, believe about that? Will they work with an advisor or we just do what we have to do because that's what the, the law says? You know, that's important. Uh, I think we're ready for our last uh, polling question here. We're coming up on 50 minutes. So, uh <clears throat> Let's do our last polling question and then we'll open it up for Q&As. All right? Sounds good. Let's see. We only have one question so far. Okay. And the question it well Actually, we have no questions right now. So, if anyone wants to go ahead and submit questions, they can. If you could just let us know if you found the material presented in the course today to be helpful and informative or somewhat informative or something I already knew or D uh, of little or no value we'd, we'd appreciate knowing that because we uh, we try to develop these courses to respond to what the uh, the needs of uh, advisors are and and we'd like to know how we're doing absolutely <clears throat> I'm gonna go ahead and close the poll in about in 10 more seconds and then we'll be Done. If no one no one has any questions to ask, well, and and again, you know, as as we said in the past, if you um, if you do have a question and and you'd, you'd rather not, uh, uh, you know, do it in, in public, then uh, we're happy to have you uh, give us a call. 
If you have questions about uh, the CE credits, please direct those to Natalie at, at her phone number or email address. Uh, I don't handle that aspect of it. Uh, she will uh, send you out a thank you uh, message after this and let you know that a copy of the presentation is available to download uh, generally within uh, 48 hours. And if you have other questions about the subject matter or some technical questions in, regarding uh, exchanges, um, please uh, feel free to give me a call. You can reach me at the, my toll-free number. Up, I'm in the, our Roseville office, or you can email me at dave at dickerson-group.com. <clears throat> Natalie, how'd that last poll turn out? That last poll got you very popular. It looks like 88% found this webinar very helpful and informative. Oh, good. Well, thank you very much. And uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, I, I hope you all have, uh, if, if there are no questions, then I want to wish everybody a, a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, it's, oh, do we have a question? Uh, yes, I do want to make I do want to make two announcements. Um, sure. The first announcement is that um, Dave mentioned this earlier, but I want to give everyone a little bit more details. We have our next webinar coming up is on Thursday, December first, um, same time, same place at Zoom, and it's called an update on association health plans, and of course is led mm -hmm. by our very informative Mr. Dave Fear. And that was it. Oh, and we did have a fun question before we do goodbyes. Okay. Are you having turkey or pizza for Thanksgiving this year? <laughs> well, to be honest with you, I don't know yet because my <laughs> wife and I are taking the motor home and we're going over to Half Moon Bay on Thanksgiving Day. And I don't know what she has uh, in store for us. Um, I'll take either one, though. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. Um, okay, so like Dave said, I will get a, I will be emailing everyone a copy of um, a link to the recording as well as a copy of the slide presentation within the next 24 to 48 hours. And like uh, like he also mentioned, of course, any questions about CE credits. Um, and if there's any issues regarding any technological technology issues um, during the webinar, please, 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 please email me nataliec at dickerson-group.com and I will definitely get you situated today. And of course, any questions about the material, alternative funding or anything like the sort, please contact Mr. Dapier directly because I know I am not the expert he is. And of course, that's his contact information. And like Dave said, I want, I hope that everyone has a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving and to please come back and join us for December 1st. Dave, any final words before we say goodbye to everybody? Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving and have a great weekend, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye.